That bass hits, baby. <laughs> I was Yo. actually thinking. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking? I was going to talk about the bass because when I was when when that was going on, I was like first thinking about how many versions of the songs I did and like three different masters, and that also that there's like four different bass parts in that song between three different bass sounds that I had to make sound somewhat similar. Who did like who recorded that? Was that you or was that Sam Arnold? So the bass that goes whomp, 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 that's me. And that was like pretty much the only thing uh, before I sent it to Sam that was bass. And I was like, okay, this, there was a lot that wasn't working. And he's hitting those runs. He's hitting the, um, yeah, exactly. And then, and then like that whole kind of second section is like that Yamaha CS. Yeah, yeah. like bass and then that's like a line that i played and so then it's really interesting because that whole song like that beginning synth riff the whole song like that's going on behind the song the entire time mm -hmm. but then like that outro section because of like the way the bass line is walking it's kind of its own melody that's chromatic so it makes it feel like a whole like new section but that same line is constantly going well, and that's a common theme in this album we'll get into later is that uh, is that the same but different uh keep keeping the excitement going um and and that is featuring ep who you've never met before in real life correct tell me about that yeah so ep ep was like <clears throat> ep's on the Arist record label um he's doing like his last record with them final record of his contract but um that's like the label that uh last artful dodger was on neil Vontali's on that label so Epps done like a collab track with um last artful dodger and so i was already kind of following him and like knew his music a little bit and he started following me i don't know how and then i had posted a video of like me playing drums to that instrumental which is what it was going to be on the album until he commented 
I'd sound great on this lol. And then I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I definitely want Ep on this track. So, you know, I was like, hey, yeah, hey, uh, dare, okay. And um, yeah, so we like worked out like a, a feature fee. And then basically I, I don't like leave my house for COVID things. So um, we arranged like a way for him to record the vocals, but those were also recorded in two different sessions at um, Alex, uh, Alex Southworths, who's the other vocal feature on the album. So they recorded um, together and they had never met each other and they totally hit it off, which is really um, kind of part of what the album is about too, which is just like putting the community on in Portland because there's a lot of like really great sounding people here. And everyone's yeah. always looking to other places all the time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. we're, we'll get into that. Uh, I want to I want to circle back to that in a little bit. Keep talking about that. Um, Barra, let's get some background on you for the people, because you and I know each other very, very well, uh, intimately yeah. well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, <that's> true. <laughs> um, but but the listeners might not. Uh, so first off, Barra, where are you from? I am from uh, Roseburg, Oregon, but like outside. So uh, the forest in the boonies in Southern Oregon. Yes, yes. Uh, when did you, <laughs> and then you, uh, you didn't move to Portland until you started going to Lewis and Clark, right? Yeah, 2008. Gotcha. Um, when you were growing up, what kind of music did you listen to? Uh, and, and it probably changed over. Give me like, what was middle school Barra listening to? Well, middle school Barra, um, <laughs> middle school Barra was the first Barra that like, like had kind of met new people and had new friends because the middle school had like several schools that went to it. Mm -hmm. And, um, but like the people that I went to elementary school with, we went all the way through high school together. But, um, so when I went to middle school is kind of when I met, uh, my friend Tim and some other people who had like older brothers and older siblings. I was the oldest in my family and they just like, they just loved music. So that was kind of like white stripes and like random hardcore bands, showbread, refused, some as they lay dying in there. Like um, murder city devils, which was an old Seattle band like things like that kind of mm -hmm. and then somehow I got a hold of both Blue Train and um kind of Blue like at the same time and I knew nothing about like jazz or like how people played on each other's records and I didn't have internet so I was like listening I was like wow, the sax player sounds like kind of the same on both of these albums. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And then I was confused because they both like had blue in the title. And that was like back, <laughs> that was back like when people were burning each other's CDs. So it was like literally just said like Miles Davis kind of blue and that's it. Uh -huh. And so those were like the first kind of two jazz records that I, that I, like heard that were outside of like a big band context, but that was mm -hmm. in high school. And so. you you were playing drums a bit back then, but you uh, for for most of your adolescence were focused on the flute. 
yeah but i like literally picked them up at the same time okay what was that what did that look like what context was was it the beginning of both of those in so um the high school band would come to all the elementary schools um or to the sixth grades and like you could demo instruments and stuff which it just seems like horrifying now (laughs) but (laughs) so you know they would have all the instruments and the high schoolers would demo them and then you could go you know and try them they spray like the the mouthpiece like alcohol in there and so oh yes I, I and i just kind of already <laughs> yeah i kind of already knew that i wanted to play flute for whatever reason so i started middle school band playing flute but then uh there was like a drum set at this uh like thrift shop that we used to go to and my mom was kind of like you should buy the boys um that drum set which, which i think she regretted but... <laughs> yeah Dug her own grave on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so then I um. Yeah, keep yeah. going. I was playing on that like through the Wisherman days, dude. That was the kit. That was the kit. It was so horrible. But okay, so I, I do want to. That's forever. a good transition because then, so so you're you're doing school band, uh, you you get into the Lewis and Clark music program. Uh, <laughs> were you a double major? Um, no, but I, I almost could have been a double major in psychology um, if I took a couple more. But because it's liberal arts, we have to take like 68 credits outside. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's tough. So I took a lot of psychology classes. So so you you start going to Lewis and Clark. Um, your your degree technically is in uh, flute performance. Uh, and, and while you're at Lewis and Clark, you start AJAM, which for those of you who don't know, is the Alan Jones Academy of Music run by, uh, you know, great legendary local drummer and um, general musical guru, Alan Jones, uh, which is where we met when we both were very, very bad. And that's when you were, I was worse than you, but we were both bad. Oh, dude. Um, and that's when you were still playing your, your first kit, your first drum kit. So, and this is around the time when, uh, as, as one's musical identity tends to do when they're at A-Jam, you really started uh, kind of re- reevaluating and discovering your musical identity and not drifting away from flute but um kind of your your relationship with flute and drums respectively and together really started changing what what was that like for you that that it was confusing and difficult for sure um part of the reason that like i don't play flute now as much is just like literally it destroys my body and I was thinking about it the other day and like how we, like how I, like, I know for sure, like hold like a lot of pain in my body or like a lot of like stuff in my body that um, shows up as pain. So thinking about like your re- literal relationship to the instrument, whether like, like thinking about traumatizing like um, auditions or like over practicing and repetitive strain injuries and like feeling frustrated when you get behind the instrument like all of these things like stay in your body so when mm-hmm. i pick and it up even though, and... yeah so literally i can't play for more than like an hour without like just being in so much pain but my mom said something really great to me that like um 
kind of helped me like not care. And it, it brought it back to actually the real reason that I like went to school was to be a composition major, but it really vibe with um, the professor. And there was only like one person that, that did that. So uh, my mom said like, well, you're a composer, like you write music. So the instrument you play like is gonna change slash doesn't matter because the voice is like in the music that you write and the instrument is just a way of expressing the voice and that changes over time or adds to your library. Yeah, yeah, I it was clear from a very early time, to me at least, that you were never going to be, your goal was not to be a sideman on it, like an instrument, like on, the, you know, their one instrument kind of blue collar sideman vibe. You were, you were, you're trying to write and lead and, and create. Totally. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I noticed a few things. <laughs> Might have had my my head up my uh, my rear a lot back then, but I've caught on to a couple things. Um, <laughs> what are your so? What does your day look like in general? What are your what are your needs, processes, essentials on a day to day basis to feel like yourself? Um, basically, I have to have unlimited time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean i basically i i wake up i have my the uh different vices that i use in my process and usually by 10 a.m i'm like in my basement my home studio working on my relationship with music which can look like a lot of different ways but i literally just go down there and do stuff i just go through the process like all day literally almost every day and I don't I feel horrible when I don't do it but I also have to take breaks and so it's honestly like a lot harder to take breaks than it is to like any idea into a song because it's just endless <laughs> you just go down there and do stuff you're like well that's a song uh. <laughs> so it's pretty much like simple like that and that would be either like recording drums or something that I'm working on or for somebody else I'm working on like Lily Shears's album yeah you're currently um, you're currently working on producing that right yeah well let's um let's get into the in, into talking about this actual new album um I'm gonna play the second uh single that you've released from it called Whoa Hey uh this is featuring Tree Palmetto which uh for, for those of you who don't know, Tree is a fantastic trumpet player and multi-instrumentalist uh, from Portland, currently living in New York. Uh, this is also featuring some guitar chops from Dan Balmer, correct? Yeah, Tree was also an AJM person. He was, yeah. Um, yeah. Dan Balmer plays on this. Uh, and also the Alex Meltzer adds some stuff to this. Does, is that correct? A couple things, yeah. Some cool. uh, some synth stuff. Cool. Well, let's hear how it all comes together. This is uh, Barra Brown, second single from the new album Left Right, Whoa Hey.
hard stop. <laughs> Gotta love a hard stop. Uh, okay, one. Well, before I forget about it, I, I I remember that I have one question about this track. Um, which came first in during the trumpet solo? The synth and the trumpet both hold this one high note in unison. Which happened Dude, me, first? Me and Tree freaked who? out too. Who's copying? Well, it who? just it just happened because um, I think I was probably I I don't know for sure, but it seems like I probably just didn't play him any the end of that and just had him solo but um yeah he hit that same note right when it holds and it's really cool and we were both like wow like he didn't like like that that track wasn't in the bounce you sent him and it just they just both kind of happens no he literally was in town for an hour and came to my house so that was one take the solo was one take yeah awesome yeah, it makes it even cooler because he rips, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Tree. You've said before, so was very accurate. Uh, Tree's one of those guys who um, just every single thing he does is amazing and beautiful. It's just gonna be cool no matter what it is. Um, all right, so this album, Left Right. Tell me what that you can remember because it's i know that it's uh track by track it comes from a lot of different uh loops and and ideas that you've that you've compiled to your memory what is the first thing that was recorded on this album the first conception how did it start i think it was noah's track yeah um because basically i do remember I you showing me that like a couple of years ago yeah, so because I came back from uh, our honeymoon and was like, had just like stopped touring as well, and was like, all right, I got like a bunch of people I want to write songs with, so I'm just gonna invite them over, because like I knew, you know, I kn- knew all the people. We just hadn't like actually written anything, so that was kind of the intention. But I did Noah over, and I think that was probably also like two hours tops, so he like laid down like those ideas and then I worked on it for like probably over a year or kind of like getting a breakthrough and like adding a new section or whatever other one was um Jack which is on uh he's on goals so I had I actually had that whole track except for the melody so he and I wrote the melody together and then he added the outro but I had all the other guitar stuff and like the form and everything already done. Yeah, this whole album is a big um, labor of love collaboration wise. Lots of people all over this album uh, yeah. co- co-writing all over the place. Um, what would you say, uh, before we get into the album concept, what would you say, just another nitty gritty question, what would you say was the hardest song on the album to finish? What gave you the most trouble uh, for whatever that song- reason? That song goals, which I'm goals. still not happy with. Just as far as like the mix, that's an ironic it was just, title. Like, <laughs> it was just really hard to like, cause I don't know. Yeah, I like I lost sleep over finishing that one for sure. You know where you're like, it's basically like an unsolved problem every single day that you have to go to bed with. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like a while of that. What um so this album title left right I, I we've talked about it at, at face value it could be the title could be interpreted as 
um, a nod to your own kind of discovering your your own ambidextrousness and how that's really opened up your playing your 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 the way that you approach the drums. But there's also uh, another kind of more um, societal uh, concept behind it. Can you talk about that? Yeah. Well, so like, I think. Yeah. Okay. Let me talk. <laughs> um, Cause it is like, I'm just curious how different people will interpret the title, like what their first reaction to hearing the title is. Cause like, it could be like for me being ambidextrous, oh, left-handed, right-handed, but even more obvious is like, like our politics mm -hmm. those terms have been pretty have become pretty yeah that's like an obvious one like uh -huh. okay and then it's more also about um as i say in the liner notes like kind of confronting and seeing um ways that we live and think in binary terms which is also very interesting when you think about the internet which is also binary and we like completely like live and rely on the internet, but that's like the whole thing's literally binary. <laughs> it's literally binary, but um, but it's seeing like like we talked about like seeing myself as like a classical musician or like like whatever jazz musician or a drummer or a flute player or like um yeah like all these ways where it's like. Why does it have to be either or and not like all of it? <laughs> like I am all of that. And like then thinking about gender and how like the way that we Why like, is binary the rule? Why is binary the rule? Like, well we know mean? we yeah. you know <laughs> But yeah, it's like when you it's it's almost like it's like really disappointing because like because it's so ingrained in how we like have lived and, and thought that we we don't get to fully like well we get to decide but it's a lot harder to explore your gender because like that's like that's an inhibition of, most of, things like, are living. most most things are binary until proven otherwise like like heteronormativity and things like yeah that. so we're not even proven it's just forced on people they'll kill you or they'll <laughs> like, you know um so then like why 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 do people want it to be like that so badly and then um yeah thinking about genre like i've always you know we've talked about this like how do you describe your own music or how do i describe the music i'm making when i feel like it lives in a lot of places at once and that's been yeah. like a struggle well i mean one of the big tenets that i talk about on this show and that i approach how i uh program bridge city bam is the idea that that genres as we understand them are are just in corporate inventions they're just capitalist totally. inventions in or, uh, for the function of categorizing and selling a product uh, you know there's there are totally. family trees and lineages of music that you can trace back uh, but you're when you try to identify your own or other people's music within genres that have been invented by record labels you're kind of fighting a losing battle to begin with yeah because they're just like borders basically which are also like made up to like separate people yeah so, so what um well. let, let's talk about the pandemic a little bit. uh you've you've soldiered on a lot 
a lot more than um, some other artists. Not that that's what anyone needs to be doing, but that's just what you've been doing. Um, and you've really embraced the process of recording remotely and hunkering down in, the, in your studio and uh, honing your own craft and learning new skills. Uh, what does that drive come from uh, for you? Why, why do you think that you have responded that way uh, as opposed to any other way that you could have possibly appropriately responded to this pandemic? I don't know. I just, so I was thinking, is it, is it like a drive or like, like a uncontrollable, like almost compulsion to like, I can't not do it. I don't know. Like literally I wake up and like, I think I'm just like thinking about music and I'm thinking about ideas and yeah so then I think about I really started thinking about like like through the pandemic of thinking about music as a relationship and like I want mine to be like really deep and really special and really intimate so like part of that means like you hang with the person or you know it's weird to personify music but it's like I just want to hang with music all day and there's very few hangs that are better than that. So I don't feel like I I would be putting my time anywhere else. Yeah. Because I love music and I want to like, yeah, I just want to hang with it. But um, you have to. You're just doing you what you feel to. like you got to do. Yeah. Um, what um? Let's get into the into we're we're already getting into some heavy stuff. I've got a couple other questions for you. Um. So you and I talk a lot about. It, music in, issues within the music industry. Uh, so in terms of community organization, economic viability, and like general, one thing that you're really into, I know is just the concept of creative problem solving uh, and creative new ways of, of, of doing things, new ways of approaching something like an album release. Uh, so what do you hope will be different moving forward not post pandemic, but just moving forward. What do you hope changes in, in the music industry, specifically in Portland, say? The problem is, is that, <laughs> well, there are a lot, but I'm, I guess I'm choosing to see this as, <laughs> like I said the other day, almost like fertile soil to like make a new hybrid. Because as far as I could tell, the fact that we have art as commerce was a bad idea. But if we're going to choose to keep living in a capitalist society, then we have to continue to uh, uh, find a way to make money while devaluing the things that we make, which is impossible. So <laughs> where I'm coming from is like, why would we want to jump back into that if we have a completely like just empty, like, little place to farm something new to create something new because you know playing $50 gigs at a venue where your only choice is to do a two-dimensional performer audience presentation of your art seems pretty limiting in a lot of ways so I would hope that like we had talked about I think it it, it seems like it's important for the scene to the artists in the, the scene to have a physical space and be congregating, talking, 
creating music and putting on shows that reimagine the way that we experience music. Um, and so that's what I would like to try to do because what, what, like the things that musicians complained about before is the thing that everyone seems they want to rush back to. Right, everyone's all of a sudden missing it. Like, has this like nostalgia for the crappy gigs that they used to right, play. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, like the first re- the first restaurant gig someone can get their hands on, they're jumping on. Where it's like, bruh, wait, <laughs> wait a minute, weren't you complaining about that gig? Right, and it's like unless we all kind of like, like we talked about, like especially if you're writing, if you're writing music, and in a place where the scene that we're writing the music in is relatively small. Like you're creating the sound of the, of the, of that scene in this city. And I think that if we all decided that we wanted to be in solidarity and try to do something new, that's things we need to figure out. But I think it would be really powerful for just for, yeah. Cause it's like, okay, we live here. So we, what kind of musical, like, um experience do we want to have with each other in this place that we live like you know if we're gonna decide to be here i think that we should be thinking like a little more long term term besides just like trying to you know just playing weekly and i know that people have to do that but it's, it's well, some people like doing that you know there are people yeah, that, totally. there are people who just enjoy doing that and then there's and people that find a space for everyone there's people that also like want to do it and like have to stay alive. So, so that's like, if we're also going back into, yeah, it just seems like um, the way that uh, everything is being handled. It's um, very, very much implied that going forward slash post pandemic or whatever, um, that it's going to be very, very similar. And I'm like, damn, that's disappointing. I wish we could Mm -hmm. make it not similar. So then it's like, okay. (laughs) Third time we said we were going to make something happen, we did. So let's go. Mm -hmm. One more question for you. Uh, On the the subject of, of the concept of Black American music in general. So we live in Portland, arguably the whitest city in America. Uh, as so as what, cis white and white passing people who are who are playing Black American music and uh, grew, learned from Black American music like that's where we come from uh, influence wise. In your view, what must we do in order to ensure that we are honoring that tradition of Black American music? Uh, rather and and propagate it moving forward rather than simply uh taking from it or or profiteering from it what's the difference difference between profiteering off of it and like honoring it yeah from coming from where we are coming from which is which is cis white and white passing people no I mean, like, if we were talking about, like, like, it has to be reparations somehow. Like, either you're, like, giving, like, free lessons, or if you open the space, it's, like, 
internships or you're giving like part of the money you make from your gigs like friends of noise or like an organization that's like working with like BIPOC and indigenous youth I don't know like that I think that's like a huge problem obviously Mm -hmm. what do you think what have you thought about um well it's something that I like to ask people about um because I think there's a lot of a a lot of possible responses and uh it's but it's a very necessary thing to think about and talk about recognizing the i mean just by by understanding that what you're playing is black american music is a huge step right be knowing what it is 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 a huge first step not that it's anywhere near enough but you have to accept what it is and embrace it otherwise you're just fighting yeah, I mean, like hiring, hiring musicians, black mm-hmm. musicians, but but it's like, so, but does the intent, you know, when we're talking about like language, it's like intent is not the same as impact. So then how is like having the intent, doing something intangible, like having an impact on, I guess, by hipping people to like things that they should maybe obviously know about who like pioneered like all the music and created all the time feels <laughs> like literally think about it, it was like <laughs> we went like revolutionized the time feel in jazz then did it again with hip-hop and now everyone's playing like that is like <laughs> after like west african time feels this is just like it all comes from right it's all <laughs> It it all comes from that beautiful merging of of uh, of different people call it different things triplets and uh, straight triplets and and um, duplets or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, but now five. Uh, and now five. <laughs> so I I think that um I think that a big part of it though in in just the intangible and recognizing is uh, crediting. Just, just it's about crediting people who have for so long been denied that credit. Yeah. Um, you know, people who great artists who have pioneered music and credits just been stolen from them. Uh and and given to the to the first uh white superstar who, Elvis. Who yeah. <laughs> Looking at you, Elvis. <laughs> Looking at you, Elvis. Um yeah, if, you know, given to the first white superstar who comes along who can do it uh almost as good. But didn't come up with it. That's a white. So just credit where, yeah, yeah, credit where it's due um, is huge. Cool. Well, that's all I've got for you. We're we're hitting at almost an hour. Wow. Um, It's awesome. Yeah, I'm gonna air like this whole thing. Uh, Bera, thanks for talking. Thanks for taking so much time and talking about so many different things with me. Uh, Your album Left Right is coming out on March fifth on cavity search records is that right that is correct People and the pre-orders everywhere are up. pre-orders are up uh what where can they find that on bandcamp barabrown.bandcamp.com i think is how it works awesome um y'all that's Barra brown here with me on a drop-in session on bridge city bam on portland radio project we're going to close it out with the third and final single um that just came out from the album this one is called Noah, and it's a collaboration <laughs> with local trumpeter Noah Simpson. Here we go. <laughs>